This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make wind turbine lightning protection easy. If you're a wind farm operator, stop settling for damaged turbine blades and constant downtime. Get your uptime back with our strike tape lightning protection system. Learn more in today's show notes or visit weatherguardwind.com slash strike tape. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we're going to talk about a new uh, new plans for a GE uh, wind turbine blade manufacturing plant. We're going to talk about the Biden administration and their plans. They've got some ambitious ideas to get 30 gigawatts of power uh, into offshore wind by 2030. We'll talk about a uh, Orsted project that's really interesting. It's a hybrid 518 megawatt project that's combining wind turbines and solar. Uh, some interesting technology being used in China, connecting a fixed bottom offshore wind turbine with a floating wind turbine of course they're also installing their first one their first floating turbine there and lastly we'll talk about some interesting technology about drone swarms both by land or i'm sorry by sea and by air so alan first how are you sir great dan how are you i'm doing well a lot of travel last week but we're back it's exciting um (laughs) we've got ge offshore uh well not offshore but uh, they're creating a new plant for LM wind power to manufacture their 107 meter long blades for the Halley 8X. Of course, 107 meters is second best now because <laughs> they have 108 meter blades, you know, Siemens Gamesa and of course Vestas. It's it's so funny. They're all just going to add like six inches to each blade. But um, this is up in Teesside, which is uh, that's pretty close to Scotland, isn't it, Alan? It's way up north in England on the sort of the North Sea coast on the on the eastern coast of northern England. Yeah, which is getting to be the norm lately, Dan, is that as these wind turbines get bigger and bigger and bigger and require uh, ships to move them around, and mm-hmm. on the offshore, obviously offshore is going to be the mm-hmm. biggest growing marketplace, then uh, a lot of facilities that are located near the shoreline are going to be uh, big opportunities. A lot of, of, of towns that may not have seen that sort of industry in a while uh, in terms of large industrial growth industries like the, like wind turbines will be going to see a boon, right? It, it's going to employ hundreds or thousands of people uh, to make wind turbine blades that big and to get them on ships and to get them where they got to go. It takes a seaport town. So it's, it's, it's fascinating that we're seeing um, this sort of sort of growth along the, sh- the shorelines that we hadn't seen in a long time. It's, yeah. Don't you and think it could be a big, big business there right along the coastline? Yeah. I mean, you could buy, I mean, potentially in the future, see whole towns, I mean, be built around these industries, just like shipbuilding yards, you know, I mean, yeah. with, uh, you know, we're going to talk about the Biden administration trying to put, you know, 30 gigawatts of offshore wind in the U S and the New Jersey area, you know, as, as you know, renewable energy jobs grow, some of those remote towns are going to have to proliferate because you're not going to be able to get good workers there if it's just this little tiny cow town where there's nothing to do, right. very remote, no one wants to work there. They're going to, I'm sure, put a lot of incentives in 
to say, hey, build this small town up because we're going to have a lot of factory jobs here and a lot of good stable jobs for the future producing these blades. And uh, we need a good Main Street. Like we need, you know, people right. to be happy here. Right. So I think it'll be important. Belfast had done that a couple of years ago because Belfast was a huge shipping manufacturer or a ship manufacturer forever, right? That's where the Titanic was built, was in Belfast. And all the accompanying sister ships were built in Belfast. So they have all the docks and infrastructure to build ships. And uh, when, the, when the wind turbine industry picked up, this is years ago, uh, they were using the docks to, to move and transport wind turbines because they're right there. They could load up. So it, it kind of revitalized an industry that had been gone for a number of years. And I think that's what's going to happen is a lot of those old existing um, seaports and, and ship manufacturing sites are going to be retrofitted into wind turbine blade manufacturing, wind turbine manufacturing sites, which is great. If <laughs> That's great news, right? So it's just like uh, SpaceX of the day, I think it was yesterday, where Elon Musk was putting out uh, tweet saying, hey, come down to Brownsville, Texas. Have you ever been down that way? Um, it's not the most populous place in the world. But he was throwing like $20 million into this little tiny town to get people to move there because they're going to grow their business there, which is what's going to happen in the wind turbine side. They're going to grow a business in these smaller towns, and it's going to make these little towns explode, at least temporarily. Um, so get it while you can. I, I think these little, these smaller communities are going to take advantage of it. Yeah, it's funny you brought that up because that just popped into my head because I saw that yesterday as well, which I'm not as big an Elon Musk follower as you are, but interesting that you, neither of us talked about that. For those of you listening, neither Alan or I talked about that Elon Musk tweet, but it's funny <laughs> that we both contextually grabbed that for this purpose because that is interesting. And of course, it's so sad. I looked at some of the comments of Elon's tweet and people are like, oh, this is 0.00001% of his net worth. This isn't even, this is like me donating a hundred dollars. Like people just be happy. Like, do you, do we need to be angry about everything? <laughs> like he's donating $20 million to a small town to revitalize downtown. That would make a very meaningful thing. And it's like, sorry, he didn't donate it to homelessness or, well, there's lots of great causes that could use that money for, for sure. But it's like, look, this is this is money going to help some people. Like, why do you need to be angry about everything? I don't know. It was well, really it's sad. going to employ thousands of people there. Yeah, it was one of the tweets I'm pretty sure I saw, which was, "We're going to employ thousands of people down in essentially the tip of Texas. Mm -hmm. We need to have a, a community that can support it. I'm going to put ten, twenty million dollars in the local community to to get it up and running." where it can support thousands of people and all yeah. the new homes that would be built and all the new businesses that'll pop up and all the new restaurants that'll, that will occur. So that, say $10 million, is going to really turn into roughly $100 million worth of investment. So it's just thinking of it as starter funds. And it's going to employ a bunch of people, which is great. Good. That's what it should do. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, this goes back to the conversation we had with, with Bjorn Hedges, uh, who's the, um, you know, Winsight manager up in, uh, in Washington state. Uh, and he was talking about like, you know, Hey, if you, if you're a person that wants to work in wind, you need to be a person that's okay. Living in that sort of more country kind of life. Like you're okay being in a little more remote, remote, remote area. And of course right. that won't be everybody. So the more you can make that town have a combination of things where people can say, Oh, I can have some nightlife or I can have some you know, whatever it is that, you know, people want. Um, it's never going to be a big city life, I'm sure. But just to make it more balanced right now, you can grab maybe like 10% more people want to do that job. That's going to be, it's going to be important because I, I oh, wouldn't want, sure. want to personally live in a 
5,000 person town in the middle of nowhere. Like, that's just like not where I'm at, even if it was a great opportunity. It's like, sorry, doesn't fit my lifestyle, more of like a city person. So they need to, you know, find a way to get to millennials. But it is, it is advantageous if you're an employee in those situations, you're going to be in a relatively lower cost part of, mm-hmm. of the country. In Northern England is, is relatively lower cost, but you're still getting paid higher wages. So mm-hmm. you're kind of on your, your, so for lack of access to a, a big downtown or community like London would be, you're making extra cash and that <laughs> that has a benefit too. And that's why they'll be able to draw the sort of talent they're going to draw there is because it's a premium. You have this bonus premium because of the, of the economic conditions, you're at an advantage there, which is if you're an employee, boy, it's hard to pass that up right now. Yeah, for sure. So moving on, the Biden administration has uh, pledged to create 30 gigawatts of offshore wind power by 2030. They say this is going to employ directly about 44,000 people over time. And they're excited about it. Obviously, you know, the renewable energy is more of a democratic push. Um, And of course, we're not, you know, on either side of the political spectrum here on on, on this podcast. But um, I know, obviously, de- Democratic folk are going to be real excited about this. Anyone in the, in the wind industry and who you know really cares about the planet is going to be excited about this. But, Alan, does this seem like a target that they're going to be able to to reach in just a decade? That seems like a, a pretty large project off the coast of you know New York, New Jersey. Yeah, it is a large project. And when hit with things coming out of the White House, like this, basically a proposal to come out of the White House, they're not doing any of the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. And and in all those situations, you, if you if you if you were to mark down all the proposals coming out of the White House, I don't care Republican or Democrat doesn't doesn't really matter. Uh, and then follow up with them and have them actually come to reality. It's very few. Uh, what drives those projects are the states, and if the, if they can uh, leverage the uh, experience of knowledgeable companies that know how to do that, get them in the state, get some employment up, get those running. Sure. What the federal government can do is essentially open up the space. That's that. That's what they can do. Basically re- relax or remove some of the barriers that will exist, some of the red tape bureaucracy stuff that will exist to, to creating this. That's where the federal government can come in. Maybe on some funding side, tax breaks, whatnot. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of the heavy lifting is done at the state level. And that's where you see, at least in the United States, you see um, a number of states that have large wind turbine industries. It's because the states have made it possible. They've yeah. leveraged the federal government to come in and help them. And obviously, um, that does aid it. But it really depend upon whether New York, uh, Delaware, Pennsylvania, all those states along the coastline are willing to play ball. Because if they're not mm-hmm. willing to play ball, it'll never happen. Uh, so that, I think I think this is an interesting take on it uh, in terms of the administration sort of proposing it. I haven't heard a lot from the states saying, yeah, we're going to do it yet. That's what I'm waiting for. Yeah, and of course, we, we reported uh, on the alliance between Maryland, North Carolina, and a couple other uh, northeastern states recently. So it seems like this is already right. something that people were thinking about and hoping to do. And now it just right. seems like if you got the thumbs up from, you know, the White House, then like you said, it's just going to remove some barriers and make it easier where people are like, hey, maybe this isn't as risky as it was because, you know, we start to put all these gears in motion and now it just sort of gets stopped, 
you know, at the uh, at the White House level. But now it seems like there's not going to be any barriers, at least. So if states really want to pursue right. it, then they should right. be like, OK, hey, this could potentially be viable. And we've you know, everyone's on the same page. So mm-hmm. that seems like a like a good way to go. But we should be holding the White House accountable in this sense. When they make proposals like this, which are 10 years out and the president is in office for four years, maybe a maximum of eight, and you got a 10-year proposal, you're not going to be around when people will be held accountable if it did or didn't happen. Mm-hmm. If, they're really, if they're really on the ball and want to make something good happen, then say it's going to be done in four years or set a lower bar and get it done in four years. I think those are remarkable checkpoints that if you really want to get some initiative behind it, then that's what you'll do. You know, it's just sort of like the John Kennedy, we're going to send a man to the moon and back by the end of the decade. Well, that was set in 62 and he died in 63 and they finished it July of 69 or August of 69. Uh, So, uh, you know, Kennedy, even if Kennedy was alive, he still wasn't going to see if that was going to come to fruition or not. I think his death probably propelled it more than anything else. Mm -hmm. But the White House and the administration really ought to tighten up those goals. We can do a lot in four years. You'd be surprised. Industry's ready to go. We are ready to have offshore wind. We can do with this in two years if we really wanted to. Yeah, well, and speaking of which, so Orsted is committed to a 518 megawatt, uh, really big uh, wind farm in, in Texas. And so like they've essentially haven't, it doesn't seem like they've started construction yet, but they expect to be operational in the first half of 2022. So like you said, of course, off, offshore is much more complex, right? It is. Um, it is. And like, yeah. and like the, like you said, the systems and permitting, all that stuff is probably not as quick in a state right. where there's not nearly as much wind power as in Texas, where they like, they've been doing this, um, for <laughs> like, quite a while now. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, this is a really interesting project though, that they're combining, um, solar and wind. I'm sure there's like the topography and the, the geographic location just fits that really well. They're also replanting a lot of like native grasses underneath the solar panels. So it seems like they're trying to do as much environmentally as they can, because I know that's a, a common, um, you know, complain about solar is that it just takes up all this space, this huge footprint on the ground. And then it's like, what happens to the wildlife there, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it sounds like they're doing a good job to hopefully pump some, um, you know, vegetative growth back into that area. Right. Well, they're trying to maximize the usefulness of the, of the land that they have. And Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's smart. If you're going to do uh, wind or solar, you want to maximize the amount of energy you can get out of it. If you're going to do it, do it, and do the do, don't. <laughs> and like in a lot of places in in my state, um, like on wind turbine sites, they tend to be smaller, ten, twelve turbines in in a spot, or one turbine in a spot. If you're going to go through the process of trying to gather wind industry, you need to do it to some reasonable level. And I think you know, Orsted is been around long enough to know how to maximize the energy out of a useful space. So this this makes a, a lot more sense than some of the smaller projects we hear about on the East Coast of the United States. It really does. Yeah. And I'll be curious to see how this is laid out when it comes to fruition. I haven't seen the plans, but, you know, are the solar panels going to be really kind of butted up towards the bottom? Like how, how yeah. intermingled yeah. are the two things? I'd be really curious to see that because as I was flying home from uh, Phoenix yesterday, so seeing some of these wind turbines as I was, you know, flying in and making my descent into, into DC, it, um, 
you know, just you could see like there was all this extra area, you know, not not necessarily excavated, but just cleared around it. And if these are on the top of, you know, a little little crest, uh, I wouldn't say like a mountain range because I don't know there's really legit mountains in West Virginia. But, you know, there's at this very it had to be a pretty sunny location, relatively speaking. Right. Not obviously not as like as sunny as perhaps Texas. But, um, yeah, you wonder if you could just like sprinkle, you know, sprinkle some uh, solar panels underneath them, just like you would mulch almost. That's kind of how I, I, I wonder if this would be like solar yeah. panels could be it's kind of like mulch where they're just lining all the extra unused space obviously within reason because you have to potentially have a crane come in and you know do all the maintenance and repair and all that stuff but sure it'd be interesting to see how they could um just like what they do with the offshore or the, they're trying to do with the offshore turbines which is make them multi-purpose right they're trying to have aquaculture labs and all these different things and stuff uh, attached to them you know, maybe solar can really coexist and intermingle because it's a very well-proven technology. I hope so. We need to do more of it. So moving on, uh, speaking of offshore, uh, there's a Chinese project with, uh, so Orient Cable has won a contract. Uh, this is reporting from offshorewind.biz that they're going to connect a fixed bottom offshore wind turbine with a floating one. And Alan, what is the purpose of connecting these two? Utilizing more energy in a certain fixed space, right? You you have an anchor you have an anchor spot, and so you can leverage that anchor spot to then put floating turbines, which are going to be the all the rave here in the next couple of years. Hook some floating turbines to this anchor turbine and sort of keep them in place. It, it may make the whole installation simpler if they can make it work. Uh, the 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 trick is you know how how to coordinate everything mechanically so you have this organized a system that's gathering power it's a little more complicated than than they make it seem but uh we're going to see a lot of, of innovation like this where we're going to leverage what we know and what we have existing with new technology and i think that's the way a lot of technologies work is that you you start from where you know and you kind of grow it incrementally to something that's uh more complicated or takes more infrastructure or, or takes more engineering know-how to do. Those little small steps that happen in engineering we always forget about are super important to get to the final goal. And it seems like this project is set up to do that. Right? It's sort of that incremental approach. Let's take this next step and the next step and the next step. This is just one of many that are going to happen over the next five years or so. Uh, to expand offshore wind turbines. And I, I think that, well, as we saw in South Korea, they're making a huge push uh, in offshore wind uh, to grow the industry. One, they have a huge shipping, uh, manufacturing, shipping uh, industry, and obviously they have a lot of shorelines. So in, in, even in South Korea, they're, they're all headed that way. Uh, you're going to see China do it. You're going to see the United States do it. You're going to see Europe do it. Spain's already doing it. Gamesa's already doing it. Uh, India will do it. Uh, it's just going to be a natural outgrowth of we're going to have a lot more wind turbines <laughs> offshore. We will. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Even, you know, we've hit the, so this is episode 54. So we've hit the year mark on this podcast, I think. I feel like we started in April, but I guess we didn't because we really haven't done like two releases in a week. Right. Maybe we did, maybe around Christmas or something. I think it was a special episode, but you know, we've hit the year mark on this podcast. And I just remember back when we initially started, there wasn't a lot of reporting on floating wind turbines. There wasn't like nope. a new one coming out every week. And now there's kind of like a new announcement about a floating wind wind farm 
or even just a new test, a new prototype. There, there's there's been a lot of changes in just in the last 12 months. And I find that that really interesting. And it seems just like everyone's like, hey, this is kind of good to go is what it seems like that everyone's gotten a lot more on board with it, that they're more comfortable with the technology, that it's maybe becoming more financially feasible, which in a year's time, that seems kind of crazy. It is. And it one, it is crazy because of how fast it has evolved. But the, 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 the consequence of all that is as the turbines have gotten larger, the number of companies that can compete in that space have gotten a little bit smaller. You have to have a lot of cash to create offshore wind turbines. When you're talking about six, 10, 12, 15 megawatt machines, there's only a certain number of industries in the or companies in the world that can even broach that subject realistically. Uh, and so, yeah, we have, and we've seen a sort of a push from land-based wind turbines to offshore. Clearly we have. Uh, so you're going to continue to see that sort of uh, large-scale industry companies, the Siemens, Gamesa's, the GE's continue to push in those spaces because they just have the revenue, revenue to create and work in that space. And, and, and unless you do, it's going to be really hard to participate in that. Yeah. One of our last stories today. So this is reporting from Offshore Engineer that there's a U.S. based company um, working with the University of Portsmouth. So the company's called uh, Ocean Infinity, and they're basically putting together a fleet of unmanned, um, you know, vessels. So these ro little robot ships <laughs> will, you know, be deployed, sent out to the offshore wind turbines, and then on those ships would have flying drones, and they'll have their drones take off and. This is also crazy that, I mean, it's, <laughs> none of it's unexpected, right? Like the battery technology, no. the drone technology, the autonomous vehicle technology, all this stuff is just really coming together. So this mm -hmm. seems pretty realistic that, hey, send out the drone ship with the drone on it. And, you know, we talked to, uh, last year with uh, the CEO of SkySpecs. He talked about how it's just like one click, at least on their models, that just like one click and the drone is programmed to to fly its path and to scan the blade and to do its inspections automatically. Yeah. I mean, it was it was always going this way, right? But I mean, what, what what's your what's your take on what Ocean Infinity is doing, and how far do you feel like this is out from being realistically in the field? Well, I think an interesting accident happened over the last week, which is going to propel this further. So when the the cargo ship uh, from Evergreen got stuck in the Suez Canal. I was thinking about that too. We have like a weird thing going on right now in our in our brains. That was a fascinating, a fascinating development. Sorry, continue. Right, but but wouldn't that say to you that a human piloted ship of that size uh, may not be the end all be all? Obviously, they put hundreds of ships through there, thousands of ships mm -hmm. per month through there. They must a month, right? They they, they must. But it only takes one to go wrong where, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden you, you don't have uh, shipping across a particular portion of the world. The drone ship thing is going to start to play into it even more, right? In, in, in the sense of there probably will be a human still somewhere around. But if they could have controlled that ship from, if the, if the canal could have controlled that ship progress through the canal and had sensed that it was having problems shut it down before it got wedged into the wall of the canal they would have done it and and i think uh if a company that's invested in that area is smart they're going to start leveraging those accidents 
um, into pushing for more autonomous uh, water-based craft. And then obviously that's going to also fulfill a second step, which is the autonomous drones mm -hmm. to go off and do inspections. Because in as we get to these larger offshore wind turbines, the problem is going to be they're going to be so massive. How are you going to inspect them and continually inspect them to make sure they don't have any significant problems? Because you're going to rely on a turbine more and more and more. Now we rely on hundreds of turbines or dozens of turbines at any one time. But because the scale is going to get bigger and we're going to get more reliant on them, you really can't have one go down. That That's what's going to drive yeah. having a... A, a swarm, quote unquote, a swarm of drones inspecting these turbines. You're going to have to have that to keep them operational. So it's just, again, that evolution of how fast can you drive it till you get to a point where uh, you are constantly knowing that the wind turbine is in good operational shape and can continue working, or, or can you flag that problem early? I don't know how you do it one drone at a time. I think it's going to be hard to do that. Because the scale, the, the scale of wind turbines offshore is just going to be explosive, and how are you going to manage it? Yeah, well, and, and you wonder if uh, at some point, like, say, you have a, a huge wind farm of like a hundred, you know, offshore turbines, if they then also just install a huge, like, helipad in the center that has some accommodations in it, where you know we've talked about this before, right? That maybe right. the the EVTOL, these electric vertical takeoff and landing, you know, electric helicopters, essentially. They've got a place to land, brings a couple crew. They're going to be there a couple days on this little rig. They've got a port for a bunch of these unmanned vessels. And all right, guys, we're going to be here for a week. And they do their thing from this sort of hub and then right. go back out. With all this electronic or this electric uh, vehicle technology that's growing, It's I think it's just going to be really hard to predict what will be the best solution. Because those EVTOLs might be great to just bring out a crew and the equipment's already there or whatever, and they go there, fly their drones and do it from that. And they might not need to send 10 boats out. Like you never know, or they might go there oh, and then, right. you know, be the the uh, director, the maestro of the little orchestra of boats that goes out. <laughs> but uh, it'll be really interesting just to see which of these get started and actually start doing the work and then get going. Just like we've talked about with ro robots up on winter and blades, right? There's Arones, there's um, Rope Robotics, which we're gonna be talking to them in an upcoming episode. There's a bunch of robotics companies also refining their technology and theirs are going to evolve and pivot right and uh some right. will f some will fade away and fail and others will become the the chosen one the golden child so just really interesting to see all the technology evolve and winners and losers as they as they do yeah it's, you're going to see a significant amount of effort applied in that space in the next year or two all right, well, we're going to wrap up today's episode of Uptime. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a regular here, thank you for your continued support. Please subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from each show. For Alan and all of us at WeatherGuard, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Is downtime causing you financial pain and putting a stop to your power production for months on end? It's no secret, lightning strike damage is a major cause of wind turbine downtime. This damage is preventable with our easy-to-install strike tape lightning protection system for wind turbine blades. Our incredible engineering, build quality, materials, and edge sealants withstand up to five times more abuse in the toughest weather and lightning conditions. And we've got the research to prove it. If you're tired of constant downtime, we can help. 
reach out to us at weatherguardwind.com and schedule a free call. We'll get your uptime back in no time.